over the past 50 or 60 years, there's been a noticeable shift in how New Zealand society considers Christianity. Uh, Here's a, a quote that I came across, and I'm interested to know what you think. This is the quote. Whereas in the past, Christianity may have been seen as good for society at best, and at worst a little bit old-fashioned, today people are more likely to think that at its best, Christianity is deeply problematic and its worst dangerous and bad for society. And the more I thought about the quote, the more I think that that's accurate. If you go back four or five decades ago, then most people thought Christianity was good for society, maybe a little bit old-fashioned, but good. Whereas nowadays, especially in the public arena, a lot of people outside the church think that Christianity is actually deeply problematic and can actually be dangerous. And this has mean that Christians in New Zealand are receiving pushback in ways that we haven't received before, especially in the public arena. You know, if you're a Christian and you want to talk about sexual standards, traditional sexual standards, you get ridiculed and mocked and abused. And so life is different. Now, we can keep our heads down and miss all this, but on the same token, the Bible says that if you follow Jesus, there will be times when we will receive pushback for our faith. And this is going to be the focus of our um, message from 1 Peter today. Uh, As we open up God's word, we will do four things. We'll explore the architect of persecution. We'll look at the reach of persecution, the duration, and finally, the benefits. The architect, reach, duration, and benefits of persecution. Now, to get a bit of a global perspective... Let me tell you about a short-term mission trip that I went to China a few years ago. In 2016, a good friend of mine, Ben Dykeman, and I were invited to work with the underground church in China. Now, in China, access to Christian teaching is restricted by the communist government. And so I went with material to teach a block course on the book of Colossians. I went verse by verse through the book of Colossians to, to help the folk gets uh, basically like a Bible college education, that sort of thing. Whereas Ben, he looked at a more of a theological view and the, the nature and the work of God. And our first week, we travelled to an underground Bible college, a secret Bible college that was housed in a steel processing factory. This is a working factory. Now, the Christian owner of the factory, so this here is the front gate looking from the inside out. It's a walled factory, which is very typical. And then that's the main entrance, a little bit spectacular, really, for a steel factory, isn't it? But here we were. And the Christian owner allowed the Bible College to use the factory's administration block for accommodation and teaching. So there's the view of the factory that was just busy being a factory. Here is the administration block that had been turned into a Bible college and dormitory. And so once we arrived there, we were restricted to that building, and then you'll see a bit of a car park about the same as two netball courts. We weren't allowed to go outside that building and those netball courts, and the factory just pretended that we weren't there. The students, they would arrive at the beginning of the academic year, and most of them would stay there and not leave for the 10 months. The accommodation was basic and tidy. Think of the New Zealand backpackers. 
And so there's a view of the garden that they kept, and that one-story building is the kitchen and the mess hall, and the laundry's just on the left there. There's the kitchen where students were rostered on to cook the food, and the food was amazing. <laughs> there's me eating chicken feet. We were very spoiled when we were there. And the students had a quite a strict daily routine. They were up at 5.15 every morning to pray. I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to take a photo of them praying, but I thought it was fun to take a photo of their shoes that they left at the door. And our, <laughs> our accommodation was next to the prayer room, so at 5.15, they didn't pray quietly. They prayed enthusiastically. So that was our morning call, and it was just lovely. Uh, the students are drawn from all over China. And once they have finished training, most of them are young adults. They will, Some of them will go on to tertiary study, but they have to go to Taiwan to do that. Um, some of them will go on the mission field, and some will go back to their churches to be pastors and youth leaders. And it was a real privilege. And, of course, uh, they wanted a photograph at the end. So there's a, a photograph of the students and the faculty. Imagine that. Imagine that if you wanted to study or learn about God, that you had to hide away in a working steel factory and you were under the threat of being arrested. And it really drove home to, to Ben and I, we had to be very careful of what we said, being Westerners in a place where Westerners were very rare. Uh, we attracted attention, so we had to be careful not to get our minders into into trouble. But it really struck home to me the high risk and the cost that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ pay to follow Jesus. And so, this threat of persecution is the backdrop of the whole letter of 1 Peter. So if we get back to our letter, remember right at the beginning I mentioned that Peter is addressing his letter to Christians that are scattered throughout what is modern day Turkey who were suffering persecution. And just to refresh our memories, if we go back to 1 Peter and after his you know, his introduction after his greetings, the first thing he says in verse 6 is this, 1 Peter 1 verse 6, is, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Because the people he was writing to were suffering grief in all kinds of trials and persecutions. So we're not surprised that as we close off this letter, or as Peter closes off his letter, that he returns back to the sufferings of those who he's writing to. And this is the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your sisters and brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so it's, it's this paragraph here and the signing off that we'll be focusing on this morning. So where do we start? Well, we start with the, the architect of persecution. Last week we explored and looked into how the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now that message is on our website if you want to have a look at that. But for now, for today, notice how Peter connects the prowling devil 
with persecution. He says this, Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because, and this is the link, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We resist the devil's attacks in all of the ways that they may come, but especially when it comes to persecution or being pushed back in our faith, because Satan is the originator. He is the architect of persecution against God's people. Now we see this in various parts of the Bible, in particular in Revelation. So just one verse 12, chapter 12, verse 17. The devil is the dragon. Then the dragon was enraged that the woman went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so so what the devil is doing here is he can't attack the woman, so therefore he attacks the Christians, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil is the architect of the persecuted church. Now, we, we did cover how to resist the devil last week, but I didn't really pick up too much on our motivation. I mean, why do we resist the devil? Well, there's the obvious, and then there's a secondary reason. And the secondary reason is what Peter's bringing up today. But just first, the obvious reason. Why do we resist the devil's attack? Well, he will not rest until our faith is completely destroyed. It's like Putin and his attitude to the Ukraine. He will not rest until Ukraine is wiped off the face of the earth, off the map. So Ukrainians are highly motivated to resist. And it's similar in Israel. The Hamas and various other Arab nations have said publicly they will not rest until Israel is, is, is wiped off the face of the earth. And so therefore the Israelis are very motivated to resist. And it's similar with us. The devil is absolutely committed to destroying our faith. And so we resist. But there's a second motivation which comes here, a second motivation for us to resist the devil. And we see this here in verse 9. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your sisters and brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And it's, there's a sense of solidarity. The, the reach of persecution is global. And so when we receive pressure or pushback for our faith, then we gain confidence to know that there are other Christians in our community and across the world that are being persecuted because persecution is global. There has never been a time in history where there has been no persecution of the church. It ebbs and flows, but globally there is always persecution. And so we find encouragement because our sisters and brothers who are going through a lot worse than us, and I think of China, because they are standing firm in their faith, we are encouraged to stand firm as well. And this actually goes both ways. It was interesting when Ben and I were working with the underground church, the feedback from the leaders was how encouraged they were that two Westerners would come at some risk to support their ministry. There was a sense where they felt, oh, we're not forgotten by the Western church. And so they were tremendously encouraged just as, Ben and I were. And so persecution is never just you. It's never just us. It's always bigger. And therefore we find encouragement because we know that God is working with all Christians who are being persecuted, scattered around the world. Uh, the next thing we look at is the duration. The duration of persecution, verse 10. After you have 
suffered a little while. After you have suffered a little while, God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. And so persecution doesn't last forever after a little while. Now, of course, this needs qualification. So if we take the first 300 years of the church, then there was a lot of persecution over that time. But it was not every day in every town in every decade. The persecution ebbed and flowed in the first 300 years. Now, people still suffered and lives lost and, and lives were turned upside down. But, uh, but it was a time of ebbing and flowing. And we see this in China. The atheist state since 1948-49 has con- consistently persecuted the church, but it has ebbed and flowed. So 10 years ago or so, when Ben and I were in China, there was a bit of an ebb in the persecution, and there had been a few years, almost a decade, where the communist state had not focused on the church, and the church was gaining new freedoms, especially in the cities. In fact, a number of churches and buildings, they, like warehouses and that, where they met, they started to be bold enough to erect big crosses on their buildings, and they didn't get into any trouble. And that's when Ben and I went. But a few years after Ben and I went, it all changed. There was a real crackdown. In fact, the people that were inviting us to China when it was time for us to go back said, oh, you can't come. It's too dangerous for you. In fact, one of our minders, a key minder, he had a dual passport. And so he left the country because the persecution had stacked up. So even in China, there's ebbs and flows in persecution. And so we pray that in China that the persecution will die down and that the Christians will have greater freedom. But even if the Chinese church, which has had some 70 plus years of persecution, we know that ultimately their sufferings are for a little while because when they go to be with Jesus, then all of their suffering will stop and great will be their reward. So even for those people who are martyred for their faith, there is a sense that their sufferings will stop and great will God's blessing be upon them. And this talk of blessing brings us to Our final point here, the benefits of persecution. There are many benefits. And so in chapter 5, verse 10, we have this. For he himself will make you you strong, firm, and steadfast. As we lean into Jesus while we are suffering from pushback, then our faith grows stronger, firmer, and is unmovable. And we have this wonderful sense of the presence of God, this closeness with God that comes through enduring suffering for him if we go back to chapter 1 verse 6 Peter starts his blessing by saying that because you are suffering God is refining and purifying your faith so there's another benefit our faith that is wobbly or weak or has holes in it is strengthened as we as we stand up for Jesus but the benefits go beyond the personal benefits because there are sort of Benefits for the wider church. And we see this in chapter 8 of Acts. If you remember, we go back to Acts. And what happened is that Stephen is is martyred, actually. He is stoned. Uh, A mob gathers. And straight away, we read this. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So we cannot sugarcoat this. This is a grim situation. The apostles, the 12 apostles, they went into hiding in Jerusalem. And those that didn't flee the city uh, were rounded up by Saul, that's the apostle Paul before he became a Christian, and thrown into jail. However, God was in control because we read in verse 4 that he had a plan. And this is his plan. So Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he did. So there was great joy in the city. And this sets up a pattern that has continued today. The more the world sheds the blood of Christians, the more the church grows. In the second century, there was a Christian leader called Tertullian, and he lived during a time of particularly intense persecution. And this is what he noted, and he's still quoted today. Very short quote. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Where people stand up for their faith and even lose their lives, you find that the local church around them grows. It seems non-intuitive, doesn't it? You know, the authorities think, we'll sort this church out, we'll kill a few Christians. And then what happens is the church grows. This is one of the benefits of church growth. Now, you can buy a church growth manual from a Christian bookshop, but it doesn't tend to say, look for persecution. <laughs> to grow a church, find persecution. <laughs> We leave that to God to bring in his due time. And so, this pattern begins today. So let me ask you a question. When was the greatest recorded revival? Let's think about this. Let's look at history. When was the greatest recorded Christian revival? Here's a, I'll give you four examples. Was it the Great Awakening in the 1700s, where optimistic accounts, very optimistic accounts, say up to 100,000 people were converted over 12 to 15 years. Was this the greatest revival? It had no persecution? Was it the greatest revival? Then we have the Welsh revival of the 1900s where over 100,000 people were converted in three years. That's amazing, isn't it? And these numbers are a lot more realistic. Uh, again, no persecution, but was this the greatest revival ever? Uh, we then, I was trying to think of a New Zealand example, and I suppose if we think of the charismatic movement in the 70s and 80s, a few thousand maybe, there are no real records about it, but let's estimate it that. Well, that was certainly great for the country, but certainly not the greatest revival. The greatest revival is continuing today, and it's in China. Over a hundred million people have become Christians over the last 40 years. It's the longest and the greatest revival in human history, in the church's history. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is the persecution. They've had 70 years of persecution. And yet, there continues to be a revival today. And so God has a plan. And that you find that if you are getting pushback for your faith, then God will use that to strengthen your faith, but he will also use that to be a strong witness to others. And you'll be surprised about how God uses that. I want to tie this together with a testimony. I was watching a John was watching John Lennox on a YouTube clip a week or two ago, 
John Lennox is an Oxford professor of mathematics. John Lennox is a committed Christian and an excellent communicator. He's my go-to author and on YouTube and on books when it comes to issues of science and faith. John Lennox rose to public attention while debating the new atheists such as Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Now in this interview that I'm about to show you, he's asked about his Christian faith in the academic world. Got three PhDs, and so this person says, well, how did you integrate your Christian faith in the academic world? And it's interesting that he tells a story about how he was pressurised to give up his faith. So let's see what John Lennox has to say. That's amazing, John. So um, tell us a little bit about your own journey as an academic. So you did your undergraduate studies and then you began to emerge as a, an academic yourself. Can you talk about what it was like being a Christian and an academic mathematician? Well, the big lesson was learnt as an undergraduate, when a Nobel Prize winner tried to encourage me to give up my faith. That was a very significant moment. I met him at dinner, and uh, I asked him about his Nobel Prize and said, did he ever think that there might be a mind behind the universe? Well, he didn't like that. And that stopped the conversation. I thought that was it. But after dinner, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And up to his room I went, it was a command. Mm. And he'd invited several other senior members of the university, including, sadly, the chaplain of the college. And they stood around, he sat me in a chair, and he said, now, do you want a career in science? I said, yes. Well, in front of witnesses tonight, give up this naive faith in God, because you'll never make it. Wow. You'll never make it. And it, talk about force majeure. The, the, the pressure was enormous. Of course, it occurred to me later... If he'd been a Christian and I'd been an atheist, he'd have been out of his job the yes. next day. Gosh. And I was so thunderstruck, I wondered what to say. And I believe that the Lord helped me. I said, sir, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've got in Christ? Oh, he said, the philosophy of Émile Bergson. Well, fortunately, I'd read C.S. Lewis, mm. and I knew about Emil Bergson. It was a very bad choice, because before he died, Bergson, who was Jewish, had thought of converting to Catholicism. So it wasn't a good choice. <laughs> and I just looked at him, and I just said, if all you've got to offer me is the élan vital, the spirit of life that Bergson believed in, I'll risk it and stick with what I've got. And I got up and walked out. Wow. But that put steel into me. Yeah, that's amazing, John. You know, I had an almost word-for-word conversation with my Old Testament professor at Oxford who said, unless you give up your evangelical faith, it's over for you in yeah, It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? And now here you are well, with your own PhD. Maybe there's something about um, needing in apologetics to really face whether we believe this is true or not. I think there is. Yeah. And I think that helped me enormously because it helps remove the fear of people like Dawkins. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? A comment to a prize with a, a um, Nobel Prize winner, an invitation to go up to his office and then to have this undergraduate, he would have been about 20 at the time, to have some important people at the university ask him to give up his faith, including the chaplain. Goodness me. Isn't that amazing? But he said God helped him, and and he refused. 
it's interesting, isn't it, the sort of pushback that you can get in different places. And then to John Lennox's surprise, person interviewing him, who has a PhD in Old Testament, was advised the same. Give up your faith and you'll be a good academic. Wow. I mean, that kind of sums up some of the persecution that we face. The four things that we looked at, though John Lennox doesn't explicitly say that it was an attack by the devil, we know that it is because that's what the devil does. He orchestrates attacks on our faith. Any time that our faith has been undermined, you can guarantee that the Satan is there somewhere. The devil is prodding and poking. Notice also that, notice that John Lennox wasn't alone that, to his surprise, his interviewer had a similar experience where she was someone tried to talk her out of her faith and said that you can only make it as an academic. And so he wasn't alone. The reach of persecution is always further than we think. We think of the duration. Now, for John Lennox, that Nobel Prize winner, wasn't on staff at Oxford University and had no influence on his study. So he worked hard and eventually gained three PhDs. And so his academic career wasn't derailed at all as he continued to hold his faith. And finally, we notice at the end the benefits that John Lennox talked about. He said that it strengthened his faith and prepared him for what God wanted him to do, which is to debate some very high-powered atheists in the public forum. So there we have a modern example of persecution for a Christian's faith in the most unlikely place. And we could go on, but it's time to, to finish this for today. Now, actually, with this message, we've finished 1 Peter. It's taken us just over a year uh, with a few interruptions for Christmases and that. And I've had a ball looking at that, but I just want to finish with Peter's final words. So Peter's finished with an encouragement to those that are being persecuted, and then he writes, up, writes and finishes with the convention of his day. So let's just go through this. Uh, 1 Peter 5 from verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Now, Silas would be a scribe. Peter would be dictating and Silas would be writing down on a scroll. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Now, Babylon was a nickname that Christians had for Rome. Peter is writing from Rome. And the church of Rome is sending their greetings. And so does my son Mark. That is Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, is with Peter at that time. And then finally, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a great way to finish the letter. Peace to all of us who are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the, the letter of Peter that we've spent the last 12 months looking at. Thank you for all that we've learned and that sense that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be strong in the faith and that when opportunities come to share our faith, that we'll be bold and that we will do that, share our faith. And help us, Lord, that when we receive persecution or pushback, to be strong in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.